Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the show that puts you, the listener, in the driver's seat because you are. The phone lines are open to be a part of the program. It's a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. And give me a call and we'll have a, we'll have a conversation about your tech questions or business and tech questions. Linux advocate, above all else, small business owner, and now host of the only radio show centered around you, the listener. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. My name is Noah Chalaya. Hey, good evening to you all. Thank you for being here. We're happy to have you. Phone lines, again, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or live at asknoahshow.com. If you send an email, send it sooner rather than later because sometimes it takes a couple minutes for the system to display it here on my screen. It took up to 10 minutes in our testing. And I'm sorry about the intro. It uh, seems like right when you sit down to do a show, everyone's sending you telegram message, messages and all that. And uh, some of them can be important, so i got to take some time to, to read that and address that. But thanks for having uh, – we're happy to have you guys here. Eric is calling from Indiana. Hi, Eric. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Eric? Eric from Indiana going once. Hi, there we go. Hi, Noah. Hey, I'm Eric. So sorry. I was... No worries. How can we help? Pretty good. How can we help? Uh, good. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. So I just bought one of these uh, fireproof uh, safes from Costco because I want to make sure that in the event of a flood or a fire that my important media is obviously uh, backed up in a off like off-server location. So do you have recommendations for, like, hard drives or other storage mediums I could put in there for all, like, my files and everything that I want to keep safe? Sure. I for So if it's going into production in, like, a NAS or inside of a, a computer that it's going to get hammered on, it's going to get used a lot, I don't settle for anything less than the Western Digital Reds. When you're talking about off-site backup or cold storage, things that are not – they're not getting hammered heavy, right? Like, you're putting them in maybe once a week and you're dumping data to them. If you do do it daily, then you probably have five drives, so it's still only getting hit once a week. For those drives, I don't care what they are. Yeah, if they're green, if they're Western Digital Blues, if they're, you know, whatever. Any any of the hard drive, you know, go-to desktop manufacturers, you're going to be all right. Um, but what I, do with, what I do do with the drives after I have put data onto them is I purchase these cases from a company called WeebTech. And I'll have a link for you in the show notes. They're available on Amazon Prime. They're about seven, eight bucks each. And basically, it's a... Um, it's a static resistant plastic case that fits a three. They have them for 3.5 inch and 2.5 inch drives. And you can put it, it's almost like the old like VHS kind of style um, uh, boxes. You can put the drive in there and then you can put those drives into like a safe or into a box or, or you know, however you're going to store it. So unpaid plug, totally, uh, totally not uh, related to the company in any way, shape or form. But I have all of my offsite backups are stored in a Liberty safe. And if you go on YouTube, you can actually watch some of the fire testing uh, things that they do. And they, they actually – they'll even go so far as to certain YouTubers that have a lot of prominence, they will send them a safe to try to destroy. Either try and blow it up or try and burn it up or try and shoot through it or, or whatever. I mean they're just – they're kind of known for, for being super durable. And they actually um, – I've got a big one. I've got the – I've got a, a huge safe that I keep all my guns in as well. And that's you know where my data goes um, because it's fireproof and it's – it's by all – for all practical purposes, it's theft-proof. Um, but they do make smaller, like chest, like, uh, uh, devices that you can, you can put in there. One thing I'll tell you what the, uh, you said it was 
a uh, you said it was a century safe. Um, well, actually, I don't even remember what brand it is. I just got it from Costco, but it seemed like a pretty decent uh, safe. Okay, sure. So some of the, the fire protection in most of those are pretty good. Like there really isn't a wide variety. You're not really paying a lot for fire protection with the more expensive safes. They're, they're all pretty much the same. Basically, for those of you that don't know, fire protection in safes is basically just pieces of sheetrock. So if they have a very high fire rating, if you cut the safe open, what you'd find is they just put sheets of gypsum inside of the, the, the plastic walls or whatever. That, that will actually do a lot to, to prevent fire hazards. So I'm saying that because you, if you were really short on cash, you could actually, you could actually put something together yourself for you know pennies on the dollar. Sheet, entire eight-foot piece of sheetrock is like eight bucks. Um, but what I, what I will caution you with is depending on what style of safe it is, they have these little, like, they look like little suitcases and then you put the key in, turn it and the, the suitcase opens up. Uh, Century is a real popular brand. Um, I think Costco has their own in-house one even. Um, the, the issue with those is one, remember somebody could just carry it off. And if, even if there's nothing actually valuable money-wise inside the safe, if somebody ever breaks into your house, they see that. That's going to be a, a target for them, right? So I would keep that in mind. Um, but if you're not worried about theft, you're just worried about fire protection? Yeah, yeah. It's re- really just for fire protection. I have to decide which part of the house I'll put it in, but um, it was mainly just for weather-related, you know, safety. Sure. Then, fire, then, yeah, any of those safes are, are probably going to be fine. And, um, you know, I would, I would just – I would just to be on the safe side, I'd keep it uh, out of sight, that kind of thing. Um and yeah, you know, it, the, the other thing to remember is offsite backups are just that. They're an offsite backup. You never want to have, you never want to rely on one backup strategy, particularly one that isn't, you know, isn't live anyway, right? Like, so I'll give you an example. Our production servers every single night have a live rsync replica. So if any server dies, then the other ser- then one of the other servers can pick up from where that last server left off that day. If it crashes midday, I, I guess we don't really have a, a great backup strategy in place other than the fact that uh, work is usually documented towards the end of the day anyway. But um, after that, so there's a live replica that happens every single day. At midnight, there is an external hard drive that's plugged into one of the servers. Data gets duplicated onto that drive, taken out, uh, and then the next day it's swapped out for an additional drive. So there's, it's a seven drive, seven day drive rotation. Those drives get put into a fireproof safe. And then once a month, I take a entire dump of the entire QCOW2 disc image and I store that at my house. So uh, we've always got uh, plenty of backups. Kyler is calling from California. Hi, Kyler. Welcome to the Ask Noah show. Kyler? Kyler from California? Going once, going twice. Thanks for the call. Uh, Steve is calling from Canada. Hi, Steve. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Steve. Hi, Noah. Hey, how are you? How are you? I'm good. How can we help? So, uh, I have a question for you. So, um, actually, we met itself, um, but I'm calling in about something else, obviously. Oh, you're that, Steve. So, okay. Well, hey, thanks for taking the time yeah, to call in. I'm not Steve. Yeah, well, I figured I'd uh, call in for this one. So I'm calling on behalf of my in-laws. They run Linux Mint on their computers, and what they've been having happen since Mint 16, and I've just been too busy to try and track down a fix for this, is when they switch audio sources, so say they're using YouTube, and they get a Skype call, they pause YouTube, and they answer Skype. When it is 
physically switching the audio from one application to the other, the screen will go blank and then come back as soon as the audio has been switched. And I haven't been able to figure out where the heck this is coming from, how to fix it. I thought maybe kernel updates would would fix it and various other things like I've tried changing from HDMI to um, VGA plus, you know, just a regular speaker cable or whatever. And it's, it's the same thing presents itself. Hmm. So it's obviously happening before the... So let me ask you this. Is it uh, integrated video or is it uh, discrete graphics? It's the Intel graphics. It's the Intel. Gosh. Um, yeah, I don't... I, I've not seen that before and I don't I don't have a great answer for you. You know, one of the things that, that occurs to me I might try is I might try an external graphics card and see, is, is it mirroring that video or is it extending it out? No, it's actually running off of a NUC, so I can't even, uh, oh. I can't even swap in a grip. Uh, oh, it's a NUC. So I'll tell you what I've noticed, Steve. I have noticed some really weird display things with the Intel NUCs. In fact, I had the first one that I had, the i5, I had an i5, uh, you know, 3400 gen, whatever, uh, and one of the things that I noticed on that one was when I would plug a display in, it would just be black until the operating system got loaded, and then I would get a display. So I, I it was picky about which monitors I could use it on, and one monitor would work for the UEFI system, and I could do the installation, but once it booted into the operating system, then I couldn't see anything, and then I had another monitor that would work for the operating system, but wouldn't work you know, for the lower display thing. And then I had a third monitor yet. Interestingly enough, it was an Apple cinema display. Um, that monitor displayed everything from the time the computer started up till the time the, the operating system loaded. So you might try a different display as well. I don't know if you've tried that just as a troubleshooting step. Um, we haven't done that because they use it to drive the media center. So gotcha. it has to work on the TV. Gotcha. Okay. Kind of the, the route there. Yep. The only other thing I can think of to try is th- there is a device, and I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but I will grab a link and throw it for you in the show notes. But it, basically what the device does is it takes a static HDMI image, um, and it it then re-encodes that HDMI image for a, 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 in, in like some sort of a standard way that displays are expected to – uh, to, to get this image and, and what it's designed to do is it's it's actually designed for media production so if you have multiple hdmi sources coming in you put one of these boxes at the front of each one of those sources and then the idea is that the input device only see it gets the same kind of hdmi signal every single time so you you supposedly you're supposed to be able to unplug and plug hdmi devices back in now we tried that at jb and i'd be lying if i said it worked flawlessly there um so i wouldn't i i, I wouldn't go as far as to tell you that um it's it's for sure going to solve all your problems, but in this particular case, since really what you're you know in the, in that interim switch part of it, it might actually it might actually solve that problem. Hey guys, last week we talked about Pop OS and what uh, System seventy six is doing with it. They are launching their own distro um, to be sold on their computers. There's of course benefits and detractors for. Uh, with that decision. And we have uh, listening to the show this week and standing by for your questions, Mr. Ryan Sipes, community manager from System76. So he's going to be available to take your questions on Pop! OS and the the future direction of System76, the fact that they're bringing their hardware all in-house. So if you have questions about that, today is the day to get those questions answered. Again, one eight seven seven or sorry, one eight five five four five zero noah That's one eight five five four five zero six six two four. As well as Ryan, we also have Emma, who's a good friend of mine and uh, works for System76. She deals with a lot of sales, and uh, Emma and I have a shared passion of switching the world to Linux. So both of those fine folks are on our shortlist to answer questions 
If anyone has them for System76, give us a call, 855-450-NO. That's 855-450-6624 or live at asknoahshow.com. We do have the email address running this week. So um, last week we had a couple of people that wrote in emails to the live address. And again, they did it towards the end of the hour. And so the system didn't populate it on my screen before uh, we ran out of time. So I'm going to take those, answer those right off the bat this week. Keith writes in and he asks, my question is, what distro would you recommend I use for my mother? Trying to help her switch to Linux, and she wants a Windows XP-like experience. Well, Keith, first of all, thank you very much for keeping your email short and concise to the point. That's really easy to read on air. That's what I'd like to. That's what I'd really appreciate if, if you guys are going to uh, write questions in via email. In answer to your question, what Linux distro would I choose for a Windows XP-like experience? Well, oddly enough, Debian with Cinnamon. Uh, seems to be a really popular choice. I know of, uh, yeah, I mean, you could do Ubuntu with Cinnamon, but I've noticed some weird errors when you try to layer the Cinnamon desktop on top of Ubuntu. Now, Linux Mint has done that very well, but I have some serious concer- uh, security concerns as it relates to the Linux Mint distro. But I know of some very, very well-known large corporations that are now using Debian with the Cinnamon desktop on top of it. So if that's something that you think you could set up for your mom, that is going to give her a very uh, Windows XP-like experience. Um, and it's going to provide her for with a really long, uh, you know, long stability system that's, that's going to last her for a, a very long time. Another thing that might work for you is Kubuntu, is KDE on, on Ubuntu, because uh, the KDE desktop is very much... Uh, styled like the Windows style thing with the you know bar on the bottom. In fact, I was so Steve called in from Self. I was actually talking to some people from Self, and um, they were talking about how when they switched over from Windows to Linux, uh, one of the things that really helped them do that was the KDE Plasma environment because it was so similarly styled to the Windows XP, Windows Seven, Windows Ten, all those things. Just the start menu at the bottom, lower left hand corner to initiate tasks, stuff like that. So either of those two things, I think, would be a really good choice. Also writing in Joseph from last week, he wrote in and said, Noah, can you tell me more about your thoughts on this device? And he links me to the multipass. Well, Joseph, we actually talked about the multipass on an episode of Ask Noah. However, it was our live episode from Southeast Linux Fest a couple of weeks ago, a couple month ago or so. And um, for those of you that may have missed it, I'll just briefly rehash it. But if you want, you can go back and listen to the full my full breakdown of that particular device. What the multipass is, is a hardware-based password manager. And basically, it you can purchase smart cards. And you take the smart card, you put it into the multipass, and you can then enter all of your passwords into this hardware-like device and then and then encrypt them with that smart card. So it requires a pin to unlock the smart card as well as the actual smart card to actually access your password database that are in in the device. And then what the device is able to do, there's a software add-on that can go into Firefox, Chrome, whatever. And it can talk directly to the multipass and pull passwords out of that device and enter them right into given websites. So you can you can use it just like you would use LastPass or how I use KeePassX, but it's it's a hardware-based device. Now, what makes the multipass even better is it does do something called keyboard emulation. Why that's really important is because, let's say, for example, I have a VPS that I spun up on DigitalOcean, and I can't access it through SSH because I've locked myself out. And so now I need to log into my console, and I'm using their little Java console thing, right? 
Now, that Java console is not going to talk to a password manager add-on because it doesn't actually show up as text fields. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, remote drawing the screen or whatever, right? Well, the multipass, if it's a 32-character password, I don't want to sit there and hack the whole thing in. The multipass does have a screen on it. Well, I can plug the multipass into the computer, turn it into keyboard emulation, and click on print, and it will actually dump the password as if it was a USB keyboard right into into the fields. I can use it for anything that I could type with my keyboard, which is really fantastic. Um, so yeah, I very much, very much like the device. Switching, uh, slowly migrating myself over to the multipass because I like I like the idea that it's hardware based. I like the idea that um, I don't have to maintain this database that may become out of date or maybe the software vendor stops working or whatever. And I also like that it's true two-factor. It's something I have and something I know, which is always a very secure way uh, to have your stuff managed. I really like it. So Multipass has two thumbs way up from the Ask Noah Show. Again, more information on the uh, episode from Southeast Linux Fest. Jared is calling from California. Hi, Jared. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Oops, I didn't click the button. Sorry, Jared. There you go. Hi, Jared. How are you? Hey, Noah, how are you? Excellent. How can we help today? Hey, I have a question for you. Um, I'm trying to do, uh, for my wife, uh, streaming uh, to Facebook, and uh, we're using OBS, and we've got the Logitech C922 camera, but I'm noticing uh, for our, and we're using Linux, obviously, uh, but I'm noticing on our final product, uh, the frame rate seems like it's kind of jumpy, and it takes a long time uh, for that camera to focus. And she's kind of moving like really close to the camera and back to the camera a lot. So I'm, I'm thinking um, maybe we need to up our game and get maybe like a, like an actual video camera and a capture card. And I was wondering if you had any recommendations along those lines. Okay, well, I'll answer your question first. Uh, the answer to your question is okay. I would use a Magwell capture card. So it is a USB uh, USB 3.0 uh, capture card. They're, they're a little spendy. They're about 300 bucks. They're available on Amazon. Again, we'll throw a link in the show notes for you. Um, but basically what it does is it exposes an HDMI capture port as if it was a V4L device. So it comes in – it'll work on Linux – Everything that uh, that a regular webcam would work, um, except you can plug in high fidelity, uh, you know, studio great cameras, stuff like that. They also make it an SDI version if you really want to get, you know, up your pro level. But um, you don't probably need to do that to fix the issues that you're talking about. So for the frame rate issue, have you specified the frame rate inside of OBS? Uh, we didn't. But, I mean, I just let it do the automatic, you sure. know, whatever it comes up with. So yep. at this point, I think it's just uh, whatever it comes up with. Yep. Okay, that makes sense. So basically, um, that and that's what I would do to, to start because oftentimes when you don't know – if you don't have a reason to, to, to stray from the defaults, I would just leave them at default, right? But I'll tell you, the, the reason that you're running into a frame rate issue is the camera is trying to adjust the frame rate and the quality, and you can hard set those inside of OBS. It's a very simple thing to do. You simply double click on your capture source, and um, you'll see a, a drop down, and it will say, uh, you know, depending on which camera you see, you have the C920, so it, you'll, you'll have the option for 1080p, uh, you'll have the option for 30 frames per second. I would just hard set those. And in fact, I would, I would, depending on what you're streaming out so if you're outputting 720 um you know to facebook or whatever then i wouldn't even i would hard set it at 720 the the, the input unless you're doing like a crop okay. 
Um, but yeah, if you hard set those, that will take care of your frame rate issue, almost guaranteed. And we've had that same issue numerous times, and that, that's how we fixed it. Now, the second issue, which is your focus issue, there is a application, and I, I was trying to Google it while you were talking. I, I couldn't quite find it, but there is a there's a software application, um, and basically it's a, it's a little package that that you install, and it gives you a, a, a just a plethora of control options for the camera. You can adjust the gamma, you can adjust the contrast, you can adjust the focus. Uh, you, I mean, all of those things are, are exposed and they have little sliders. And so you can, you can actually set the focus and, and I believe you can just lock it and then, you, then the, the camera Ooh. won't refocus. So you, the, the answer to your question is Magwell USB capture. And if you have the money for it, um, there's actually a PCI version that's going to give you way better reliability because anything over USB, it's fine if you just have one camera. It's not fine when you start getting into the three, four, five. You're going to run out of USB bandwidth. But, um, but I don't think okay. you'd have to spend any money to actually solve your problem. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. I thank you very much. Yeah, no worries. And I will. Uh, what I'll do, uh, Jared, is I will go and see if I can find that software package uh, for you. I can't remember. It's something so simple. It's like V4L control panel or C- V4L CP or something like that. And I'll find that for you and I'll throw that in the show notes. Again, if you have questions for System76, 855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. We have both Emma and Ryan available to you to answer your questions about System76 hardware, or the future of System76, where they're going, what they're doing with their own operating system. Now, last week I said, or maybe it was a week before, but I said that we don't talk enough about virtualization on Linux. So tonight we're going to do that. Now, the last few weeks I've been living virtualization in Linux day in and day out. And it's been kind of fun because one of my good friends, um, not Chris Fisher, but a different Chris, uh, a good friend of mine, um, he is at the same time he, w- I was going through this and kind of digging really deep into Linux virtualization. He's kind of doing the same thing. And so we've been kind of Linux virtualization buddies and he had another commitment tonight, so he wasn't able to make it, but I, I did invite him. He says he might be able to come tell me about his progress next week though. But over the years, I have collected quite a few virtual servers from a number of VPS providers. Now, if you have one, if you have two, three, if you, even if you have 10 virtual servers, there is no other way to go. Just keep your stuff on a VPS provider because they're going to back up the host. They're responsible of making sure that the thing is running. And it's, it's, it's going to be a really great uh, experience for you, and it's not going to cost you very much money. That's not to say that you're never going to lose data because – I have had VPSs crash, and as of no fault of the VPS, I was maintaining my virtual server just fine, and they had a host failure, and I lost data. In fact, one such failure actually cost us calls one week on the Ask Noah show. Um, But in the business world, we refer to this as economy of scale, because if you have three servers, it just isn't worth – the scale of how many servers you have isn't worth to host it yourself, so you just pass it off to a provider. Now – how you arrive at that is you look, you say, so I have 10 virtual servers and they're $3.50 each, then the total cost per month is 35 bucks. Well, there's no, there's no possible way that you can buy and maintain a server for 35 bucks a month, not even close, right? But let's say, for example, you had 1,000 servers at $3.50 each. Well, now you're talking about $2,500 per month. Well, for $2,500 a month, I can run a data center for 500 bucks. I can buy three R930s. I can cluster them. I can budget to replace the hard disks and the power supplies, which are the two most often things that fail. And even at that point, I would still be saving money after a couple after after a couple months. In the business world, we call this a break even analysis. Um, so at, at some point in the last month or so, the bucket kind of tipped for me, and 
I was now spending more on VPSs than I really wanted to. And so I looked into a number of different options. The first thing we looked at is hosting, like coloing. Uh, so basically what a colo is, is there are data centers that open up. They have you know massive fiber lines that come in, usually two or more different data connections. So for redundancy, um, they cool these rooms you know, down to the appropriate level for servers. They, they stack racks inside of them. They implement a lot of really great physical security. This is the one in particular that we looked at had, um, biometrics. So they had a a fingerprint plus you had to sign in, show, you know, ID credentials, that kind of thing. They had 24 uh, seven access. They also had data seven data center technicians on hand for the low, low cost of $160 an hour. Um, so, and we haven't actually ruled that out completely. Um, we may go that route eventually because the data center is only about 60 miles South of us. And it would, uh, it, it turns out when you live in North Dakota, power is really, really cheap. And so data centers around here will give you a one twenty twenty circuit uh, for next to nothing. Um, and that's not the case other places in the country. So I have a good friend of mine lives in California and he hosts his, uh, he's got a lot of his machines um, that he just couldn't afford to run in his house anymore. And so he rented some space in a data center. And I said, geez, man, you know, cause he's using it just for, um, he's using it for project development uh, he's developing uh, Linux distribution stuff. Uh, so it's all out of his pocket. He's not, you know, turning around making a profit on this stuff. And I asked him, I said, how can you afford to spend that 450, 500 bucks a month, you know, to rent this data center? I mean, geez, man, that's got to be a lot of money just to, just to have the quote unquote proper way to, to house your service. And he said, listen, I couldn't, I couldn't pay for power in California uh, for those machines, for what the data center is costing me. It just totally, destroys it. And so I, my power bill would be at least that much, if not more. Uh, so for him, it makes a lot of sense. Well, out here, they don't care about power. We got plenty of power. So here's where Linux steps in and kind of saves the day. So most of you have heard of Citrix Zen Server, and many of you are familiar with VMware. And I've had my own battles with all of these different systems, including but not limited to Hyper-V. Um, but what we don't talk enough about on this program, and what really deserves a little bit more attention in the Linux community is libvirt and qemu because the virtualization technology on linux is absolutely fantastic so libvirt if you're not familiar with it is an open source api a daemon and a management platform for virtualization so it can you can use it to manage kvm you can use it to manage zen you can you can use it to manage uh manage vm where esxi um and basically the the virtualizer on Linux is QEMU, which is it, it actually is in the kernel. So it's actually the, the hypervisor built into the kernel, which is pretty neat. Now, things like VMware are great if you have the money for it. Um, but the reality is, if you actually dig into it and look at it, you can get the same things done with Libvirt and QEMU on KVM. And so what we've done is we went ahead, we rented a few dedicated servers and they cost us about $75 a month. And then we virtualize them. So these, to give you an idea what these machines are, these are, uh, I believe, 1270 V6 CPUs. They have 32 gigs of RAM. And I believe it's two two terabyte hard drives in a software RAID. Um, so they're, they're beefy enough machines uh, to handle quite a, quite a few different uh, virtual servers. Um, and of course, with the two physical hosts, if one goes down, we've got, we've got redundancy there and a backup. Um, and then we use the technique that you can run on your VPS. And this is really cool. Basically what it does is it takes a image of your virtual disk. So let's say you have a disk on DigitalOcean 
or on uh, OVH or on even uh, Linode, you can take an image of that disk and you can transfer it over SSH to a QCOW2 file. Now, if you're not familiar with what QCOW2 is, there are two ways to – well, there's many ways. But the, the two most popular ways right now to do virtual disks are raw files, which is basically – it just make, basically makes a, a block of – takes a block out of the hard drive and says, okay, I'm going to make an image file this big and I'm going to use it as a virtual hard disk. That's one way to do it. The other way to do it is QCOW2. Now, QCOW2 has almost the same performance as RAW. You take a very minimal performance hit, but it's much more flexible and it, it enables you to do things like live snapshotting. You can do live host migration. So one of the things I was playing with is I just did it. In fact, I was doing it over Telegram just to show other people because I thought it was it was so novel is I had this <laughs> I had this virtual machine running on on one host. And then I had the I have obviously have a virtual host at my house and um, I just set up an NFS, NFS share between the two and I was migrating between between the two hosts. So I said, oh, okay, I'm going to take it from the data center, move it to my house. OK, now I'll take it from my house, and move it back to the data center. And you can do that live. I can migrate it back and forth. Um and it's just some really cool things. And my understanding is that you have to use the QCOW2 data file to do that. But that, it's basically for 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 lack of a for lack of a more elaborate explanation, it's a, it's a virtual hard disk, and you can turn any virtual private server into a QCOW2 file. Now, once we have it into a QCOW2 file, then I can open it with any virtualizer. I could open it with Hyper-V. I could open it with VMware. I, and I'm of course using QEMU with Libvirt. Um, so we migrated those QCOW2 files to the new virtual host, and then we spun them up. Now, I know what you're thinking. You guys are thinking, no, that sounds like a lot of work. That sounds like a big hassle. That sounds like, it just sounds very complicated. It's going to be really hard. Um, it's not. And in fact, I'll make you a bet. If you were to head over to the show notes right now, this is assuming you're not listening live, of course, and you check out the links that we have in our knowledge base there it, to, to set up the virtual host, and I did it on CentOS 7, the original the, at the time when I was originally setting all this up, it was CentOS 6, so the, the commands are, are still for CentOS 6, but they, they forward. So it's things like service instead of syst, uh, you know, um, system CTL. We haven't updated it, but it works. But I'll make you a bet. You run those four commands, and that's all it is, four commands. And you could have your virtual host set up under CentOS in no time at all. Um, it's another four commands to transfer the VPS uh, image. So that, that entire script I was talking about to uh to to move your virtual virtual machine over that's that it's only five commands um and it's it's a it's a fairly brain dead thing to do uh and what's cool to me is that all of these virtual infrastructures are able to work with one another so for example i was moving i had a lot of machines that i was running in virtual box that i was using for testing and stuff like that and i was like well now i have this big server I'll just move those up there. I wonder if I can move my VDI files. Well, it turns out there's a command to convert VDI files to QCOW2 files. And once you do that, then I can move those up to my, my virtual infrastructure, and now I can access those remotely, you know, on, on the net, public IP, the whole nine yards. It's, I mean, it's really cool. Yeah, if you started doing it right now, you'd probably be set up and done by the end of the radio program. Now, for those of you who are wondering, yes, I have set up a virtual host on a virtual machine. So in other words, I've gone and rented a VPS and I've set that up as a virtual host. That's not, I'm not saying that's a smart thing to do. I'm not saying it's a good thing to do. I'm not saying it's a useful thing to do, but it, but it's, it's, it's a, it, but it works. So, it, and the, why that's important or why I would do that or the advantage here is if you want to try to see if this works, 
you know, I don't know if anyone, if, if some of you haven't rented a dedicated server, it is not as simple as you click on the button and the, the service shows, shows up. So, I mean, they, they have data center technicians that have to go like power the machine on and then they add it to your portal and then you got to deal with all the IP stuff. And it, it takes a little bit to actually get the thing set up. So if you, if you don't want to go through all that hassle and you just want to say, could I, and then there's the expense of it too, right? Like 75 bucks is a lot of money if you don't even know if it's going to work. So you can try it on like, a, you know, like a, a, you know, like a $5 VPS, See if it works for you. If it works, then you can go the rest of the way. Um, but then once you get the thing set up, it's slick because managing the virtual servers ha- is, it, it, for me anyway, has gotten way easier. I have it set up. Uh, I use a program called Vert Manager, and Vert Manager is a graphical program that will allow you to access your virtual infrastructure. You can manage, again, you can manage all of them. You can manage, you know, VMware, you can manage all these things, but I'm using libvert with uh, QAMU. And uh, it pulls it right up, and I can get console access to them. So Vert Manager, because it's connecting over SSH, it respects things like my YubiKey, so I have true two-factor authentication into my server. Uh, I can do multiple windows, so I can open up like five different servers at once and cascade them across my uh, across my desktop if I want to. Uh, Vert Manager is running locally, so all of the screens are being drawn locally, which means that it's 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 a way more responsive environment. So, and that I was noticing that when I was setting up some of the servers that have graphical heads on them. Like I, there was, I had one time where I was setting up my X to go, you know, cloud client, whatever you want to call it, had X to go open in one window and I had vert manager in the other one. And I'm like, geez, man, I set the resolution. So it takes up the whole screen. I wouldn't even notice the difference. It's, it's that responsive. Um, and you know, the other thing that is interesting is OVH, which is where we rented the dedicated server from. They don't have a recurring fee for static IPs. So you pay a $3 setup fee one time, and then you're good for as long as you keep your server. And that's that's critical here because in a world where IPv4 is running short and yet still so very necessary, there is little penalty for eating up a huge block of IPv4 addresses. And what that translates to is the more virtual machines I can spin up, the more cost-effective this decision to rent the server has become. Um, and so what has happened, what that really translates to in English is that Noah has spent the last couple of days spinning up a virtual server for everything under the sun that he's ever wanted. And then some, um, because it doesn't cost me, it cost me three bucks, one time fee. Uh, and for that I can have, yeah, I can, I can spin up a bunch of these servers. And the thing is we're talking about resources, right? Like I had discussions with a couple people and they're like, man, 32 gigs of Ram. Like, you know, that's not a lot when you're talking about a virtual host. And there's, you know, one gentleman I was talking to, he's like, yeah, my, the virtual host that we have is like 195 and we're still short. I'm like, here's the thing. A lot of you guys are running Windows guests. And so you're talking about one, two gigabytes, four gigabytes uh, per virtual machine. And I'm not doing that. I'm running headless Linux servers. And I ha- I'd say the vast majority of my Linux servers, vast majority um, are 512 megs. That's what they're running on. And they run great with that. Uh, they don't need a, Linux does not need a lot of memory for a lot of the stuff that it's doing, especially for those little piddly things that, you know, like um, t- little web servers that are running or, uh, you know, we have uh, an Apache, uh, you know, virtual host redirector, all those things. They just don't require a lot of memory. And so you can get away with spinning up, uh, uh, you know, a bunch of these servers with 512 megabytes of RAM. Well, why not just run them all in one server? No, why not just, you know, spin up one virtual server with, you know, like four gigs and then have it do a bunch of these things. Compartmentalization. Right. That's a key thing is I have the ability to say I can split this machine up, that machine up, that machine up. And if one crashes, if something tanks or something gets compromised, the rest of them are safe. 
So it's it's a very cool system. I'm talking more about that in a little bit. But I have holding here Ryan Sipes from System76. Uh, last week, we talked about Pop! OS and System 76's new direction. And so, uh, again, if you have questions, one 450 noaa that's one 450 and we'll put you in touch with Ryan. Or if you get questions about purchasing new System 76 hardware, you can talk to Emma. She's standing by as well. Hey, Ryan, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, it's good to be on, Noah. Hey, glad you can make it. So I understand that um, I understand that the last week there are probably a lot of people that are very excited about the Pop OS, and there are probably a lot of people that are skeptical. And uh, and you've had probably to deal with both sides, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, but that's the nature of open source, so it's a good thing. Okay, all ideas should be scrutinized, and uh, people should feel free to provide their feedback on open source projects. So Fair. that's really healthy. Fair enough. Tell me this: what are what what do you see as the the most dangerous uh, aspects of this? Like, where do you see the biggest pitfalls? Where do you see the biggest risks in this in the in this going forward? Making your own OS. The biggest risks. Uh, it's probably going to be a little bit different than uh, what most people would imagine. I would say the biggest risks are teaching people. Uh, where to go for resources, you know, such as Ubuntu. There's a lot of documentation around Ubuntu. There's a lot mm. of uh, documentation that uses the name Ubuntu. Sure, name recognition. And so uh-huh. one of the challenges I see that we're going to have to undertake is is teaching people that they're using a stable Ubuntu base, and that most and that you know those tutorials that they find out on the web for certain you know changes that they typically make to their Ubuntu installations apply to Pop! OS as well. But we're also putting quite a lot of time into docs right now, mm-hmm. and they're going up on pop.system76.com slash docs. Mm-hmm. And right now there are only a few, but we've got uh, quite a few of us here in the office who are just detailing every little thing that we can, and uh, we're going to continue doing that, and hopefully that will be a really great resource to answer people's questions when they try out Pop! OS for the first time. Well, you know, um, you know, and we talked about Linux Unplugged. I mean, I, I know it's no secret between you and you and me. You know, we have a difference of opinion on some of these things. But the reality is, if there is one company that I would love to see take on the, the challenge of building an OS and integrating it into, you know, their own hardware, it would definitely be System76. Um so how does it concern you at all some of the negative feedback you've gotten even from the people within the System76 community? I, and I don't mean in the company, obviously, but I mean a lot of the people that have been hardcore supporters are still saying like, man, I don't know, this seems like this may be a rocky idea. Does that concern you guys at all? Uh, well, it, it'll concern me more if they feel that way once we're out of alpha. <laughs> okay. The truth is, you know, we're still in alpha, and we and although we've done a lot of ideation and a lot of uh, and and put some of the stuff out there, like recently to put out our development approach, which I think people can read and begin to see the difference between our approach and and other distributions approach. It's it's through this um, research and modeling method, you know, where we're going to be doing user testing and going through a process to see what actually improves the experience would actually, you know, makes people more productive on the platform. I think that that's going to begin to differentiate us from other distributions. But right now we're 
you know, the alpha is a test of a lot of uh, the infrastructure needed in order to produce an operating system. So people kept asking, why does it seem like it's like nothing has changed? Well, we needed to test if what is how to distribute this thing, what we what problems we would run into off the bat, you know, and so we're right now we're the alpha allows us to kind of test those systems and make sure that they're ready for when the actual release hits. But if you and and some of it's getting feedback. We didn't want to make a lot of assumptions and then have our users hate those assumptions. Mm-hmm. So by producing something that says here, here, we're going to diverge a little bit from the Ubuntu vision. You know, this help us decide what's actually important and help us do this user testing to determine what actually will help improve workflow, what actually will help professionals using sure. Linux as their platform to get more work done. Yeah, okay. And so let me let me ask you this, right? We're, we're Go ahead. still early days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it is. It's early days. And I'll tell you what, I have played with it. I've, 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 I've taken a look at it and I think it looks really, really, really slick. I think it, I think I really like the direction that you guys are going. I definitely can see how, um, there is, there's more cohesiveness and stuff like that. But I guess the thing I struggle with is what would have been wrong with taking those admittedly very excellent modifications you've made to GNOME and just submitting those upstream? I think that. If you ask anybody who's running Arch or running, you know, another rolling distribution, they would say Ubuntu doesn't move fast enough. You know, we have users who who really are doing big things and they need the more current software, they need certain features, or they're running something that's honestly like, you know, anywhere from two to two years to six months behind. And uh, I think we're going to try to be a little more iterative okay. and give people, you know, as much software as soon as possible and not have them having to wait six months to get them, you know, the new and shiny, but also, Wouldn't, I was so, today, so, so there's, uh, so hold on. I've, I've, so I, I've got, I've got two, two questions, two follow-up questions. So the first is, wasn't part of the original reason that you guys started this track was because, of the you know the the pending changes that were coming to you, your users that all of a sudden you know unity is getting ripped out from under you know your your large user base and as a as a as a system integrator that you know specializes in you know walking alongside those users then you had to make some decisions to make sure that they had a a, a comfortable transition was that not kind of the was that not was that, was that a part of why you guys went on this track to begin with no, I think that's something that's been propagated on the internet. I don't I see. think that that doesn't reflect the reality over here. Okay, the reality fair enough. is that we we wanted to, you know, we wanted we wanted to ship Unity Eight for a long time, mm-hmm. but Unity Eight never came. Sure, and uh, that kind of as following that, you know, we had conversations about what we thought a great experience would be a great Linux desktop experience. And we started thinking through all these ideas, and then we realized maybe we shouldn't be waiting on anybody anymore to implement these things. Maybe we should implement them ourselves, you know, or pull in the community around interesting ideas that we have or that we work collaboratively with the community to come up with. 
Fair you enough. Know, Fair enough. The, how, let me ask you this: How I, is System How is Let me ask you this: How is System seventy six addressing some of the concerns that that users and the, the community have? Well, right now we're doing a lot of ideation on our subreddit. Uh, just today we were talking about how you know Node.js in the repo is five dot or no four dot seven dot two, and the LTS on the website is. Six dot, I think uh, somebody's going to correct me on this, but six dot eleven. Yeah, that's fine. And the most current version of Node is eight dot eleven. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's not the people. I, I started asking online, where, where how do you install Node? They were like, go and grab the PPA, go mm-hmm. and grab the repo. Sure. And that's like, do you uh, do you ever try? You know the. To get it from the distro? No, it's too old. It's always been too old. You know, you know that like, that's that's fair, Ryan. Okay. That's fair. And I deal with this on a daily basis, right? Like I'm I'm the guy on the front lines that's sitting there with the client going, okay, we're gonna have to get a PPA to get this version in here. But here's what I've seen. What I've seen in the field is that a lot of people go to Ubuntu because it's Ubuntu. And so you have this infrastructure that has built around Ubuntu. And I guess my question is uh, you know, is is Ubuntu going to be offered as you know as a as an option when you purchase System seventy six hardware? Because even if you make the most amazing operating system in the world, it's technically superior. It looks better. It has more current, up to date software. You you still have you know like universities are a great example. You still have universities that, due to the way that their grant programs go, are going to mandate that they run Ubuntu on those machines. And how can System seventy six address those concerns? How can we address those concerns? Yeah, like so having for, a superior experience. Okay, so but what, so I guess so, I guess what I was asking was so it won't be it, like you won't even offer the option to order a machine with Ubuntu, or that's not a current plan anyway. Eventually, eventually on laptops and desktops, it will be Pop OS. Okay, you know the LTS will be around until the new LTS, but sure, I I I think you know <laughs> we I I think. There's a lot of negativity around a newcomer yes. in, in this space and a lot of questions around, you know, whether or not we're going to be able to do it. But I think people should be asking, how big is the Ubuntu desktop team? You know, mm-hmm. I, I know, but I don't think most people know. You know, they say a company of, this, of our size can't do it. You know, we, we 85% of our work, you know, 85% of what we sell is the a Linux desktop, you know, and sure. uh, and so a lot of our work goes into Linux desktop, and so we're company focused on the Linux desktop, and I think that we have, we can add a lot of value for people who use the Linux desktop in order to accomplish their work, mm-hmm. and I think that I don't think that anyone else is focused on the Linux desktop as much as we are. Fair enough. You know, I don't think any other company is. Fair enough. I, well, so you know, we're gonna we're gonna try our hand at it, and if people don't like it, they don't have to run it. But I think people are gonna love it, and I think people will run it. I, you know, I'm not sure and that so, I'm not sure that it's I'm not sure that as people aren't afraid, they're not gonna like it. I think it's they have a I think they just have a, a, a healthy amount of concern for the fact that uh, you know I mean. Man, this is a big decision for you guys. So, and I mean, we're all rooting for you. I hope it goes well. Been System seventy six customer for a long time, and uh, you know, I'd like to continue to be a System seventy six customer for a long time to come. So, we got to leave it there, Ryan. I appreciate you calling in. Thanks so much for taking the time to be here. No, no problem, Noah. And I hope that you'll also become a System seventy six community member and 
maybe share some of your ideas on our subreddit. Yeah, yeah, that would be fantastic. I'd love to chat more uh, offline and stuff. And, and again, huge thanks to you guys for what you guys are doing, and we wish you all the best. Uh, Brandon is calling from Canada. Hi, Brandon. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi. Uh, my question for you, Noah, is how can DRM benefit the HTML5 standard? I'm only I'm mainly asking because I want to see the devil's advocate point of view. Uh, everybody's saying that it's terrible. It's 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 a defeat for the open internet. But is there an upside to it? No, there's not an upside to it. There's no upside to DRM whatsoever. I will give you you. I mean, you called you told my call screener you wanted to hear the devil's advocate position, so I'll give it to you if you want to hear it. But um, the reality is, there's it, it is you have the the problem with some of these positions is that you have to take out logic and you have to ignore and. You have to ignore the way that human beings behave in order for these explanations to make sense. So here, I'll, I'll give it to you. Here is the here is the devil's advocate position for DRM. Companies spend okay. h- hundreds of millions of dollars sometimes to develop content, movies or or software or video or music, whatever it is. And these companies, their only incentive to continue to make these this content is to get rewarded in, in, in the form of capital where they resell their content. And certainly neither you nor I would want anyone to steal content, right? And this is the part where you say yes. Right. So, okay, fine. So, okay, so if we, if we all agree that stealing is bad and wrong, well, then what we should do is we should institute some sort of software control mechanism that will prevent people from stealing. So as long as you're acquiring content from Netflix, as long as you're acquiring content from you know Hulu Plus or whatever, uh, if you, as long as you're paying your $9 a month, and you open Chrome uh, and run Netflix, you won't have any problems viewing your content. That'll be perfectly fine. And so what's the big deal if all we do is prevent people from stealing this content? That's the argument. Here's the here's the here's the here's all of the logic that you have to ignore for that argument to make sense. First of all, it entirely excludes people like you and me who don't consume content the normal way. I don't want to consume my Netflix content in my web browser. I want to watch Netflix content on my Western Digital TV Live that was made 10 years ago, but I really like it because it plays local media content, has 12 volts at 2M, so it means I can take it in my camper with me. That's how I want to consume my content. Mm-hmm. Also, by the way, that means that I won't have an internet connection, so somehow I have to get that media off of Netflix's server and onto my device, whatever that is. Or I want to okay. take take something like um, what's that new what's that what's the stupid thing they always give you in the the violet uh, ultraviolet or whatever it's like the it's like the digital alternative to Blu-rays that thing requires some stupid software package that only runs on Windows um, and so you you have to download the stupid software package yeah. and then you can you know view these uh, you know digital movies well that doesn't make any sense because there's people that yeah there's right there's people that don't use my Windows or Mac OS so that. Uh, there's another example where that's not going to work. And then finally, what you really have to uh, what you really have to step back and ask yourself is okay, that's the reason for instituting DRM. So is it working? Is it stopping people from pirating content? And the answer is unequivocally no. There is nobody out there that wants to watch a movie that can't afford to spend the $19 to to buy the Blu-ray or whatever that isn't finding a way to get that movie via torrents or Usenet or whatever, right? It's not actually stopping anyone. The only thing it's doing, you you might prevent you know, a tiny, tiny, barely measurable portion of the population that is um, not, you know, is, is not wealthy enough to go afford the media and is also not knowledgeable enough to figure out a way to pirate the media. I mean, there probably is some measurable portion there, yeah. but it's not really, it's not enough to make a huge, you know, a difference. So the, the vast majority of people that don't want to pay for the content 
aren't paying for it anyway. And I'll tell you what DRM has really done. What DRM has really done, and this is where they've really screwed themselves over, and I thank you for the call. They have, they have screwed themselves over because people like me would purchase content. I have no problem paying for the content I want to watch. Uh, and there's a great site called VHX, and VHX sells DRM-free video content. So anyone can make a documentary or a, a, you know, a drama or whatever, and as long as it doesn't have DRM, you can upload it to their site, and then you can resell it. Now, when you go to buy the content, you have two options. You can stream it right there on the site like you would with Netflix, but you also get uh, your entitlement to download an MP4 copy, 1080p, from the website. Now, there is a limit to how many times you can download the the local file, so they let you download it like three times or something, which I think is reasonable because there's not a limit on the file once you download it. Um, so you can put it on as many of your devices as you want to. And, of course, I'm not advocating that anyone actually pirate the the the, the media. But if you wanted to take it with and watch it at a friend's house or something, there's nothing software-wise in place to keep you from doing that. Um, if Look at what Amazon has done to the media industry. It, there used to be a time when if you wanted a song, you'd either go buy the CD that had 11 songs you didn't want and, and one that you did, and then you'd rip the CD and delete the 11 and keep the one. And what Amazon did was they started with, uh, you know, it kind of st- started with things like iTunes, where it had a bunch of DRM, and then it went to things like Amazon, where I can pay 99 cents and download any song I want. Well, I tell you what, it's not worth 99 cents for me to bother with trying to pirate music. It's just not worth it. It's just easier to pay the 99 cents. Oh, and by the way, if you buy a CD, or like when I, I was, we're talking about music on user error, and I bought the, the, the latest album from, uh, from uh, Pen- well, I bought both the latest album from Pantera and All That Remains, but uh, the latest album from All That Remains Madness, when I bought the CD, just because I like having the CD, it's kind of cool. I have something physical to put in my collection. I can look at it. Um, they actually gave me a digital entitlement. So I was able to download all those music, uh, all that music then on Amazon. Oh, and also, by the way, all of the music I've purchased in the past is available to re-download. And so when you start stacking up, when you start... It, it, the irritating thing to me is that... They are trying to fight technology, whereas if they actually embrace technologies, if these idiots would just stop and think about it for a second, if you embrace the very technology you're trying to prevent people from using, you could actually use it to lessen your job and make more money. If everyone back in the 10 years ago, 15 years ago, if they wouldn't have fought so hard against MP3s, if you think about it, you only have to encode that MP3 one time and stick it up on a website and a robot can take care of processing the sales, delivering the content. You don't have to pay to make a CD. You don't have to pay to shrink wrap it. You don't have to pay some guy to deliver a box of CDs. You don't have to convince some store owner to buy X number of copies of the CDs to have on on hand available in his shop. You don't have to worry about if that CD goes out of date and the next album comes out. You know, how many of those are you going to make? None of that. You don't have to worry about any of that. You just put it up on the site and however many people want to buy it, will buy it. And if they'd embraced that from the beginning, they would have been set in the movie industry. The TV industry is making the same mistake. They're doing the same dumb things the music industry did 10 years ago. They're making it virtually impossible for you to own your own media. And so what happens is people that can't pay for it anyway are just going to steal it, and there's nothing you can do to stop them. So you're not actually accomplishing anything. The people that wanted to watch the, 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 the content legally, you're actually making it more difficult for them to do it because there are certain hoops that people like me just aren't going to jump through. And so that's why, that's, that's a huge, long reason of why you should always just get all your content from places like jupiterbroadcasting.com because there is no DRM. 
because we do just offer everything. Every single show we do on the network is available as a download. In fact, we have long conversations about how many various formats we're going to offer said content, content, even if doing that is detrimental to us internally. There's all sorts of, you have no idea the, the amount of thought that goes into how content gets released there. I, I mean, seriously, the, the people that are, people like Chris should be commended for the amount of time that he puts into catering to the way that you guys want to consume content. It's, it's way more than you'd ever imagine. And we never talk about it because there's nothing sexy about it. Um, and you'll never hear him talk about it, but he spends hours and hours and hours every day trying to figure out what changes he can make to make it easy for everyone to consume content. And none of that is DRM, and we don't even charge you for it. I mean, you can go be a Patreon if you'd like to support the network, patreon.com slash Signal, And you can voluntarily donate some money and say, you know, I really appreciate the content that I get at no expected cost to me every single week. That's something you could do. We don't force you to do that. Although there is a really cool new podcast that's coming out inside of the Jupiter Signal. So if you are a Patreon subscriber, you actually get that content uh, at, at no additional charge, but you only get it if you're a Patreon. So that's kind of cool. But that's been my answer is stay away from the places that want to to uh, to charge me the money. And if I do want to watch that content, I'll go and try and find it in a way that I can get it for DRM free. And I think it's coming. I think that eventually an Amazon or a Google, one of these companies are going to step up and they're just going to say, we need to offer we need to offer content, video content like we offered music content. We need to start leveraging technology rather than fighting against it. And I think if that happens, I think you're going to see a major shift. I think it's going to be really cool. Uh, we got time for one more call. If anyone has a question, 855-450-NO. That's 855-450-6624. Um, there is an article that I don't have time to get into because we're, we're at the bottom of the hour. We're almost out of time. But I, I'll just briefly touch on it. I'll throw the link in the show notes. If you guys want to read it, I was going to do a, a, a big breakdown of it. It's a gentleman that basically compromised the DNS servers of the IO, .io domain. So basically, he found an exploit where he was able to register the name servers for the IO domain, and then he pointed those to his name servers and was able to effectively shut down the entire top-level domain. It's funny because I have a couple of IO domains, so I appreciate the fact that he did it in a very responsible way um, to make sure that nobody's traffic was actually affected for more than a couple of seconds. Um, but basically, uh, he's got a whole write-up of it, um, and uh, and again, we we're going to break it down, but we just we kind of ran out of time. But it's a really fascinating read, and it's one of those things that I didn't even go um, looking for. I was just uh, I was I was doing show prep actually, and across my sh- one of my social feeds, somebody uh, posted it, and I was looking at. It, I thought, man, that's really interesting. We have to we have to talk about that tonight. And then you guys were such a great audience that we took calls instead. And there's of course nothing wrong with that. Uh, if you guys want to support the program, asknoahshow.com. That's the Ask Noah dashboard. That's what we call it. And basically there is all of the resources you would need to be a part of the show. We take your calls live every Monday night, 6 p.m. Central, jblive.tv and live 88.3 LPFM in Grand Forks. We're also taking emails live for a couple more weeks. Didn't get any this week. That's okay. Live at asknoahshow.com. We'd ask that you don't send emails to that address outside of the show. Because it is set up on a on a specific system that I, I pull the emails in as almost like a almost like a live text stream, and so when you send them outside of the show, then I completely miss them and I don't get a chance to address them because I shut the shut the software down after I get off the air here. 
But uh, we'd invite you to do that live at AskNoahShow.com, or you can head over to AskNoahShow.com and use the dashboard. There's a contact link there if you want to send in questions outside of our normal showtime, Monday at 6 p.m. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. See you all back here next week. Huge thank you to Sarah, our call screener, Ben, our producer, and Rakai, our video editor. We'll hand you off to Crosspoint coming up next on Logos Radio, KEQQ 88.3 LPFM, Grand Forks.